0: Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you're a God who cares for the needs of your people. So today we ask that you would be with those in our congregation or those who are present in worship who have various needs of kinds, some that are known and some that are not known to others. I pray for those who are sick or recovering from sickness Some have illnesses that are seasonal, things that come around each year, and others have more significant illnesses. God, we pray that you would not only provide healing for your people, but that you would also be the God who lifts our heads, the one who brings us under the shelter of your almighty wings. We pray that we might see and know you as our shield and deliverer. And Father in heaven, we also pray for those who recognize, maybe even emotionally or spiritually, a sense of darkness or heaviness of soul. Wintertime can be challenging, but it also often makes us feel as though life in this world is heavy And so, Father, we pray that you would lift the heads and the hearts of your people who suffer from either depression or anxiety or just heaviness of heart when the sun doesn't shine. Lord, help us, your people, to see and know that whatever darkness seems to bear shadow over us, you're the God who casts light into those dark places. We pray that you would give us comfort. Lord, I pray specifically for Peter Doyle and ask that you would continue to help him to be strengthened and recover from his recent illness. We pray for others in this congregation likewise recovering. Heavenly Father, we lift up those who are away at the RUF Winter Conference this weekend. We pray that you will cause your spirit to move through the preaching of your word to point many to the Lord Jesus, to bring certainty and assurance to those who wonder. God, we pray likewise for those various campus ministries that uh, serve on this campus. We pray for Navigators and Onward, for CMDA, for Campus Outreach International, for RUF International and RUF. And God, we pray that you will use those who serve in these campus ministries to point others Uh, not only to Christ but also to His church where they might be built up and established. And Father, now as we consider what we've talked about earlier, that there is an upcoming mission trip, we pray that you would begin to raise up people to pray and that you would likewise go before this team that goes and that also, Father, you would provide the resources financially to help send this team. We thank you so much for your love and grace, and now we pray that you would quiet our hearts beneath your word. In the name of Jesus, we, we ask. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 9. Exodus 9. We looked last week at the fourth plague from which God struck Egypt, it was flies. In the midst of that, you, you would have heard this, God is teaching his people that he's the protector of life and also really the giver of eternal life. And so this morning we're going to turn to what is the fifth and sixth plagues, uh, the death of livestock and boils on both man and beast. Now here's If you're just a visitor today, you need to understand the reason we study this is because God's word is relevant, whether ancient or uh, like when you think of the Old Testament or found in the New Testament. So we believe both testaments, these are the words of God for his people. Plague five and six come like a one-two punch. And they come as a response to Pharaoh's hardness of heart. So let's read Exodus 9, beginning at verse 1. We'll read through verse 12. And remember, this isn't man's thoughts about God. It's not even clever or cute stories. This is actually God's Word written for His people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, behold, The hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Here's God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father God, we recognize as we come to your word that we're looking at an ancient document, and we recognize that in ourselves we cannot extract truth apart from the ministry of your Spirit. So we ask that you would give to your people the ears that they might hear what your Spirit says to your church. More than that, if there are people here who have not yet embraced the offer of the gospel given through Jesus Christ, that they might hear and come running to our Savior. And then finally, Lord, would you be willing to to use a sinful crooked stick like me to point this beautiful but narrow way to Christ Jesus? in whose name we pray. Amen. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, there's 31 chapters, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you know that there are at least two characters that are personified, and it would be helpful to have explanation on who they are. One character is called the wise, the other character is called the fool. And so a seminary professor of mine would have defined the wise as a person who's humble and teachable, a person who values the instruction of God. And the reason he values that instruction is because he's a person of faith. That is, he's, he's looking to God. He, he lives his life in a Godward direction, and in fact, he treasures the instruction that God would give and shape his heart. And then you have this fool, this other person, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators is a guy named Derek Kidner. And Kidner tells us that the fool is obstinate. The, the root of his trouble is spiritual. It's not a mental problem. He likes his folly. And he likes it so much that he goes back to his folly again and again, like a dog who returns to his vomit. He has no reverence for truth. He's stubborn. In fact, he consistently rejects advice, and his mind is closed to God. And the reason it's closed to God is because he has rejected wisdom's first principle which is the fear of the Lord. You might summarize these two characters like this. The wise learns under the the hand of God because his is a a posture of faith. And examples in the Bible include Job or that woman who came to Jesus in Luke 7 who wept over Jesus' feet and anointed him with expensive ointment and wiped his feet with her tears and her hair something incredibly wise and beautiful about both of these who wait upon the Lord and learn at his feet. Job, trusting God in circumstances he does not understand. The woman running to Christ when she's convicted of her sins and lying down at his feet. And then, of course, there's the fool who's prideful, self-sufficient. He's unwilling to bow his knee or his heart to God in spite of overwhelming evidence. And so by this point in the plagues, let's be honest, the the evidence is overwhelming. It doesn't really take five plagues to get the point, but evidence means nothing to Pharaoh, which is why in the Bible he is really the quintessential fool. Fool. He's exactly what the Proverbs talk about, giving every truth concerning God's power and justice and authority over everything in creation. Pharaoh, the fool, increasingly hardens his heart by his own sin. Evidence abounds. And yet his heart refuses to love. It refuses to love what his mind knows to be true And so, in these 12 verses, the magicians and Pharaoh illustrate the question which is placed before you and me. Will you be wise? Will truth impact your heart? Will what you have learned and known from God and His Christ and salvation move your heart toward the Lord? That's what this passage is about. Your heart must be must love what your mind knows to be true. I didn't get my outline in the bulletin in time this week. It's my own fault, but I'll make it easy for you. We're just going to use three B's, okay, the letter B. Background, behold, and then thirdly, belief. Background, behold, belief. We start with background. I've told you over the last several weeks That when God decides to send a plague, it is for a purpose based on which false god he wants to expose and shame in the moment. Which gods of the Egyptians does he want to embarrass and shame and conquer right in the faces of those who worship them? Why does he do it that way? Because he is answering an underlying presumption that's always existed in pagan cultures. And the underlying presumption is those who are winning... Those who are ruling and reigning over others have the gods that are powerful. Naturally, the Egyptians come to the conclusion, we are reigning, we are ruling, and our gods favor us more than that singular God of the pitiful slave Hebrew people. And so you understand these strikes as the hand of Almighty God who says, not so fast, before I even let my people out of this slavery, you will know my power and my authority and my faithfulness and my love, all of which are superior to your petty false gods. Now, 3,500 years distance from this account, it's a little easy to look at the ancient Egyptians and laugh. Can you imagine how stupid they are to think that little frogs in the shape of a goddess would serve and protect them? That flies on the body of a man would be sufficient and powerful? But Christian, you might be tempted to believe the exact same thing. Not about their gods, but about your own. Sometimes you're tempted to to deify or twist things into idols, things that were never meant to be worshipped. And the more you draw happiness or try to suck happiness from these idols, the more you realize that these idols keep taking you into sin patterns that you hate. And in the midst of those sin patterns, weary and guilty hearted, the lies of the evil one keep telling you, this little idol owns you. And you in weary heart go, Yeah, it kind of does. You keep telling yourself that, that this little God is more powerful than the God who delivered you out of slavery into Christ. You keep telling yourself, I'm stuck. It's it's hopeless. This is who I am. And yet the evidence of the Bible says exactly the opposite. Or maybe you'd say, no, Eric, I don't actually think the idol is more powerful than God. I just think the idol is more powerful than me. I'm stuck. I'm just too weak to get free. And God again says, that is not true. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you're from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. Do you believe that? Others treat their idols as more powerful, not by saying it, not by feeling that they are suffering under its reign, but by spending on it. Pouring so much time or money into hobbies and habits and houses and entertainment that what you are de facto doing is assigning to your idol a power and place that it doesn't have. More power than the God who delivered you out of darkness into light. Your heart must love what your mind knows to be true. Take a look at verse 2. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Why does God pick livestock? Why is he picking on them? Well, this is first a, a massive economic blow. When your oxen fall dead, you don't have a way to pull your plow. Therefore, you do not have a way to turn your soil. Therefore, you cannot plant your crops. When your camels and your donkeys and your horses die, they can't pull the carts, which move goods and people. Therefore, your economy begins to collapse. And here you notice, this is not described like it was before, the finger of God this is described as the hand of God and the hand of God is not just on the Egyptians generally it's on Pharaoh specifically because everybody knows that his kingdom and his wealth and his progress is built on an economy that thrives and so Pharaoh God places his hand on Pharaoh to say but the reason we know that we have to look more deeply than just simply the economics of it, is because Numbers 33, 4 tells us what God is doing in these plagues. It says, Yahweh executed judgment on the Egyptian gods. His hand isn't just on Pharaoh. Philip Ryken says, many gods and goddesses in Egypt were depicted with livestock. Some people worship the image of a bull, which they thought was a figure of fertility. In fact, there's lots of cults that designate their symbols with bulls because it's such a common symbol of power. There's also the goddess Isis, the queen of the gods, depicted with a cow's head and horns. Then there's Hathor, the goddess of love and beauty and motherhood and fertility, and it's her function to protect Pharaoh. What does it say when the cows are stumbling and falling in the fields? God's hand is heavily on Pharaoh. Ryken goes on to say, like many Hindus, Egyptians loved their sacred cows. It's the reason when you come to Exodus chapter 32, and Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and the people begin to go, where's God? What they decide to form is a golden calf, because they are not looking forward to the deliverance that God is offering. They're looking back on these petty, silly gods of Egypt. Let's get a cow. Maybe that'll help us. And you go, gosh, that's so silly, One of the most powerful tools that Christians have ever used through the centuries to to share God's word with people who spoke a different language was to translate the message into the language of the hearers. And you might say that's exactly what God is doing here. Because when the holy cows that you worship grow weak and sick and fall over and die, God spoke a language that they could comprehend his message I am more powerful and glorious than all of your sacred cows. Let's apply this to your own world. As God seems to put his hand on Apis and his hand on Hathor, these two false gods, Apis is, this, is a masculine God. And so to Egyptian men, he represents the illusion of conquering women in sexual power. Conquering women a false god that many young men arrive at college hoping to worship. Perhaps even the whole world of pornography is woven into this idol worship, a man with power over a woman in an imaginary world. And then, of course, there's Hathor, a feminine god, goddess, an Egyptian women worshiped her because she was a symbol of glamour, which to many young women is really just the other side of the exact same coin. Here's what I mean. This is the, the woman's desire to control, conquer men, not physically, of course, but emotionally. To desire to be so attractive and so outward, so, so beautiful in your outward appearance that men are literally eating out of your hand. So here's what you see. God places his hand on the distorted view of self-serving masculinity and the deformed manipulative view of femininity, neither of which are God's design. Verse 11, verse 8 through 11, why does God strike with boils? Because this is a really sophisticated culture. And they value the study of, of medicine, so it won't surprise you that they had a pantheon of gods that they might summon to heal them in various needs. One of them was amon re He was thought to be the creator, or at least one of their creators. One ancient text calls him the physician who heals. Another false god in Egypt thought to help with disease was named Sekhmet. And those who worshipped him were something like a, a medical fraternity and, and they trusted Sekmet to provide healing when people were sick. And so God strikes with boils to put his hand squarely on their gods. Where's your false god? When your whole body is covered with gaping wounds, no one can heal you. By way of application, we should certainly say that God has given to us in this day and age the blessing of modern medicine. And it's good and right for those who who suffer under sickness and disease in this life to use the benefits that God has given to us in science. But unlike the Egyptians, Christians always know that ultimately, in a full and final sense, while medicines may be good and useful, It can never be your ultimate source of confidence. Only your confidence must come from the tender hand of a loving Father who not only cares for you in this life, those things which are temporal, but also in a long term sense. It is our knee jerk reaction to presume when something bad happens to us physically that God must hate us and he is unkind and cruel. What if he loves you and cares not simply for this temporal but for the long term and intends to shape your own heart and the hearts of others? Doctors, nurses, and medicines make a really wonderful implement in the hand of God, and yet they are never the primary source of confidence because they are unreliable as God's. Heidelberg Catechism that we read at first, what is your only comfort in life and death? And I am not my own, but I belong body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a physician for you. There's a God who heals for you. Your heart must love what your mind knows to be true. We started with background. Let's look at the word behold. Uh, God gave a warning. It's become so common in your hearing over the last several weeks that you can recite it yourself. Let my people go that they may serve me. The word for serve can also be translated worship. Worship. Because the goal of the Exodus was the glory of God. Get these people who are slaves out so that they might become worshipers of the one true God. When the Lord Jesus redeemed you out of bondage to sin and slavery, he did not rescue you so you could go, I'm free, I get to reign and rule my life. He rescued you so that you could likewise become one who worships and serves the one true God. God said, if you still refuse to obey me, my hand will fall on you. I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon series that one of the ways that the Egyptians bragged about the strength of their Pharaoh was they talked about his, his heavy, strong hand or his heavy arm and so that's the reason that God says, I'll use the same image. Look at verse 3. Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Now in the Bible, this word behold is meant to get your attention. It's, it's the same way that you and I would say, hey, look, or, or, or listen up. Your, your, your point is to say, come and move your gaze. Give attention to this fact. And here's the behold. Pharaoh, you think you hold my people. You let them go or I will hold my hand on you and it will be so severe. It starts tomorrow. The very next day, verse 6, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. I'll take time next week to talk about this, all of the livestock. But for now, I want you to just notice that, that what happens is these plagues increase in intensity and they increase in nearness to Pharaoh. And as a reader, what you begin to get the sense of is God's heavy hand is resting hard on this stubborn king. And you and I, biblically speaking, we're the the wise, according to the Proverbs. You and I are those in Christ who desire to bend our lives towards the Lord and His guidance. And so we must ask a question, is there enough evidence to prove the reality of their situation? I mean, at this point, has God been clear enough? Has God allowed Pharaoh the space to figure things out? Five plagues in, the answer is, of course. One pastor made a list of all the things which are very obvious, And Pharaoh already knows there's this saving power of God, which is obvious. There's the call to serve God, which is obvious. There's the folly of idolatry, which is obvious. The need to trust in God alone, which is obvious. The consequences of stubborn rebellion, which is obvious. But more than that, God makes a distinction to reveal His justice and His mercy. His power to be just on one hand and merciful on the other. Verse 6, said all the livestock of the Egyptians died, not one of the livestock of Israel died. That's what God said was going to happen. But Pharaoh wants more evidence. And so, while this pleasing aroma of rotting animal carcasses floats across Egypt, he says... I'd like to summon a force to go and inspect things over in Goshen. God had told Pharaoh to send his people out, but instead, verse 7, Pharaoh sent his inspection team to gather more evidence about God's judgment on him and behold. That is... The narrator says, notice this, not one of the livestock in Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. So the point of behold is to say, look, the unbiased witnesses couldn't get around the cold, hard facts. The sovereignty of God extends over the petty gods of Egypt that they serve. And surely, you say, with all this evidence, Pharaoh's going to surrender. This is the chance. Plenty of evidence. But Pharaoh remains unmoved. Why is that? Well, the point is written in your text Pharaoh, your heart must love what your mind knows to be true. It's not that he doesn't know what is true, there seems to be a wrestling match over the matter of sovereignty? Behold, look, the sovereign reign of God doesn't move Pharaoh's heart to submission and love and obedience. Why not? second half of verse 7 tells you sin, his deep desire to run life on his own terms, sin has this increasingly hardening effect. It is not that Pharaoh doesn't know it is that he wants to ignore what is true. I've met with Ryan somewhere in his low to mid-20s. He was by then holding down a an hourly retail job. Uh, Ryan was living with his girlfriend and spending most of his extra money on uh, beer and marijuana. He was investing for the future. That's a joke. You can And yet, for some reason, having grown up in the church, Ryan felt like it would be important to meet with one of the pastors to explain why he didn't believe in the Bible or the gospel. And so, as we met, Ryan offered many objections. Over the course of three hours of conversation, he offered those over lunch. Here's the conclusion that was quickly obvious Uh, evidence really wasn't the problem in fact he could agree there's plenty of evidence for christianity there's even plenty of evidence for the resurrection but ryan did not want to give up his perceived sovereignty over this little tiny kingdom a girlfriend who lives with you beer and pot that's his kingdom That's his sovereignty. And over here is Pharaoh, who really does have something of a kingdom, something of people underneath him and wealth and grandeur. And somewhere in between Pharaoh and Ryan is you. You have much more than Ryan, perhaps, much less than Pharaoh. And yet the text seems to be asking you the same question. He's still wrestling with the Lord over the matter of sovereignty. I pray that Ryan, after 10 years, it's been a while since we visited. I pray that something of the Spirit of God has moved in to transform him. I don't know the end of the story, but I do know this. When you look at this particular passage, You who belong to Jesus Christ, you who profess faith in Jesus Christ can find a very profound comfort in this passage because if the Holy Spirit of God has has moved you towards Christ and brought you to saving faith, then what has happened is the Lord has planted in you a built-in mechanism. He's given to you Jesus to guard your heart from growing hard. Behold, look, it's the Holy Spirit a gift to reveal your own sin to you so that it doesn't cause your heart to get hardened. You don't have to do what Pharaoh wanted to do and what Ryan wanted to do. You don't have to wrestle with God over the matter of sovereignty. Who's going to rule your life, Christian? Jesus is. So here's how it looks. I mean, at ground level, this is what it looks like. When the Spirit of God convicts you, you open your eyes and you agree with the Lord. And then you open your mouth and you confess what He has declared is true. And then you open your hands and you ask Him to help you release those sins. And somebody might say in this room, I've been doing that for a long time, and I don't know yet if I have evidence of improvement As if it is up to you to tell the Lord at what rate sanctification should take place. As if it's up to you or me to evaluate it with this little slice of time in which we live. God says, my spirit is in you. You can trust me to transform you and not allow you to grow hard. So what do I do? When I'm convicted, I want to be tender about my sin. I want to call it what it is before God, and I want to confess it and repent of it and pray for God's forgiveness and deliverance through Jesus Christ. That's actually the biblical difference between the proverbial Pharaoh fool and a humble, soft sinner who's wise just by grace. Your heart must love what your mind knows to be true. Background, behold, we'll close with belief. We haven't seen the court magicians since plague number three. I told you they they fall off the scene and they do. But as they tumble to irrelevance, their ineptitude points us to Christ as they fall. And so the very reason that the narrator mentions the magicians again is because the ashes in the air and the kiln, is a mockery of the pagan priesthood to which these magicians are so closely linked. They they stand before Pharaoh as if they are mediators between Pharaoh and the gods by taking ashes in his hand, tossing it In the air, Moses is emulating a practice that the pagan priests did. They would take ashes and they would bring them to a particular person or a particular place. And they would toss them in the air. And it was their belief that they were offering blessing over the person or over the place. And so when Moses goes to the kiln, the place where the bricks were made It recalls, of course, that the Hebrew people are under a curse, a harsh, cruel labor placed on them by Pharaoh. God says, Moses, you go to that place where the curse of bondage is most easily seen, and you you pick up ashes from that curse, and you throw them in the air. I wonder if you get the picture. God hijacks their image of blessing, and he turns it into an image of God's judgment as boils, sores form on all of these people. One Egyptian scholar explained it like this, thus the very soot made by the enslaved people was now to inflict punishment on their oppressors. God was making Israel's curse into a blessing and was turning Egypt's blessing into a curse. Now look at verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all of the Egyptians. And so as they tumble into irrelevance, their ineptitude points us to Christ as they fall first. Notice the physical sense. Every Egyptian is overcome by these painful sores from the top of their heads to the bottom of their feet. And the mediators, these magicians... That the Egyptians rely on to stand between them and the pagan gods can't even physically stand in the midst of God's judgment. So the text is crying out, who can stand before a God who brings judgment? Secondly, in an earlier sermon, I mentioned that the Egyptians thought of themselves as clean. They were pure or so they thought. They thought of these Hebrew people as unclean and dirty, and their view of this was entirely external. So, the Egyptian men shaved their bodies of all hair. They all used perfumes and decorations and adornments to make themselves look clean and pure. And magicians, who can't even stand on their own two feet, now covered with sores, cannot perform their religious rituals. They can't mediate, not only because they cannot stand, but because they are physically impure by open wounds all over their bodies. And so the text is crying out with another question. Who can stand as a mediator in the midst of God's judgment? Not to perform rituals, but to purify the internal heart. The Egyptians placed all their hope in these inept priests who could not even stand a first low-level glimpse of God's judgment. This judgment in the Exodus is nothing compared to Revelation 16 where the wrath of God is poured out. It's just a foretaste. And as they tumble to irrelevance, their ineptitude points you to Christ in two ways. Number one, there is a Savior who has already stood underneath the judgment of God. He stood on the cross and bore the heavy hand of God's punishment on sin. He's risen from the grave and His name is Jesus. And God's justice is satisfied and Satan is conquered. Who's the mediator who could... Be qualified to serve as a mediator, not on this first day of judgment, but on a better and great day of judgment. Jesus, a high priest who is utterly and completely pure, not externally, but internally, is the only one capable of standing on the day of judgment and making you pure, not externally, but internally. His name is Jesus. Jesus. The Bible says it's Jesus and Him alone. And the Father in heaven is so certain of this priesthood, His capacity to mediate, that He says to His Son, Come now, you who have stood beneath my judgment and sit at my right hand and reign with me. Belief. It simply means this. Your heart must love what your mind knows to be true. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray for the ministry of your spirit to cause your word to go forth, to land in the hearts of your people. You tell us that your word will not return void, and so we pray that you will accomplish what you desire with it. It belongs to you and not us. May it be an instrument in your hand. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.